Hey everybody, this is Ray Renati. And before I officially start today's podcast, I would like to mention a production of Ragtime, the musical that I saw at Berkeley Playhouse in Berkeley, California. If you have a chance, go see this show. It runs through March 18th, 2018. And it's a very special production. You know, they don't have a lot of money at Berkeley Playhouse, but they took this sweeping musical with a low budget and made it something special. Something really special that's not to be missed. The performances, by especially by the leading actors, but the whole ensemble are uh, extraordinary. The lighting is incredible. With their low budget... They did incredible things with a set, very imaginative. I never would have thought of it. It's absolutely worth your time, ragtime. One of the best musicals in the canon of American musicals, I believe. It's, it's, it's sometimes forgotten about, but when done well, it's spectacular, and this is no exception. So if you get a chance, go see Ragtime at the Berkeley Playhouse. Mm-hmm. In Berkeley, California, running through March 18th. Okay, let's get on with the show. Hey folks, how y'all doing? Did you enjoy that song? That was my friend Carly Ozard, one of the best singers in New York City. And I'm not just saying that because she's my friend. A lot of people in New York City who know singers know Carly. She's great. That's from her latest album. That's her disco version of Bridge Over Troubled Water by Sarman, Simon and Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel. That's the disco version. If you're in New York City, be sure to try to catch Carly at some venue that she'll be singing at. She'll probably be somewhere while you're there. Check it out. Today's show... I had the opportunity to talk with Mr. Richard Fouts, a playwright in San Francisco, who has a new play that will soon be in production at the Z-Space. It's called The Birthday Lottery. The Birthday Lottery will be at the Z-Space, opening on March 29th at 8 p.m. with four performances, the final on April 1st, 2 p.m., The Birthday Lottery is about the Vietnam War draft. Some of you might actually remember the Vietnam War. Many of you may not. But I'll tell you, it was a big part of our history that cannot be forgotten. And I think it's great that Richard has written this play and that its first production will be in San Francisco, California. All right, let's get to the interview. Richard Fouts. So I'm here with Richard Fouts, and I'm so happy to be talking with him. You sent me an email through my website. 
That's right. Yeah, that was exciting. I think that was probably the first one I ever had. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I've had other ones, but no one actually sent it through that little link on the website. Oh, I, was, I, just, I was very excited. I just thought, what the hell? He's interviewed, you know, my leading lady in my play. He's interviewed my director, so why not, you know, yeah. keep, the, keep it going? Yeah, and, and the name of your play is... The Birthday Lottery. The Birthday Lottery. Uh, the, the complete name is The Birthday Lottery, A New Play About the Vietnam Draft. So I, I put that little tagline in there yeah. uh, because The Birthday Lottery sounds like it might be some fun comedy, and this play's actually quite heavy. Oh, I see. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah it could. Oh, yeah. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. I, thought I like it when plays have subtitles like that. What is it? Uh, Albies play The Goat or... Or is this Sylvia or something like that? Have you ever seen The Goat? No, I haven't. Oh, no, never mind. We won't get on to that. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so what is the birthday lottery? Can you tell us uh, the, the, about the play? Well, on December 1st, 1969, uh, the U.S. government, the military, held a draft lottery. Uh, the Vietnam War had escalated, um, and the body counts were very high. We were losing 100 soldiers per week at that point, and the Army was literally running out of soldiers. And so Richard Nixon reinstated the draft uh, to include a broader range of, of young men. Up to that point, it had been a typical draft where you know racial minorities and poor people were being drafted. And then in 1969, Nixon and Kissinger came up with this idea that let's just draft everyone and let's uh, end school college deferments. They ended graduate school deferments, and suddenly now everyone was was vulnerable. Ah, so before that, the draft was discriminatory. It was, yeah. and and you could uh, you were protected from the draft if you were in college, mm-hmm. and so you could just stay in college and never have to be drafted. Yeah. So uh, Nixon ended graduate school deferments because that was one way to avoid the draft, and then college deferments were sharply curtailed. So if you were in school now, your college deferment ended at this current semester. So if you if you got drafted in January, your college deferment expired in June, regardless of you or what year you were in. Oh, okay. Well, so in a way, it was a sort of a, a democratic um, decision. In a yeah, way. I mean, and and what the premise of my play is is though the draft lottery was designed to bring equity to the process, it actually uh, pit young men against each other. Um, it actually created this unwanted contest of individual survival. And suddenly it was this sort of very divisive move. So between guys that got low numbers and guys that got high numbers and lifelong friendships suddenly were compromised or even ended if, if you were number 35 and your buddy was number 200. Oh, interesting. And, yeah. and that comes up in the play, I guess. Yes. Oh, yes. Great. The guys start to turn on each other. And, and these are fraternity brothers? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. This, it takes place at, at, at an Ivy League school, the University of Pennsylvania. I wanted that because to just to demonstrate that the privileged class was suddenly vulnerable. So it didn't matter if you were at the University of Connecticut or San Jose State or Harvard or Yale, uh, you were subject to being drafted. And it takes place in this fraternity house. Um, and I, you know, lived at a fraternity house when I was in college. And 
And so these fraternity houses, like my director, Suze Allen, likes to say, it was like a cocoon. This was your home. This was you were protected. And suddenly it was being invaded by the U.S. Army with this lottery, just drawing these birth dates one by one out of this big glass bowl. And and that became your draft number. And destroying friendships, it sounds like. It did. Um, And I saw that firsthand in my own fraternity. Really? Yeah. Tell me about that. You know, I remember I I was number 95 in my my year, uh, 1972. There were three drafts, one in 69, there was one in 1970, and then there was one in 1972. Um, I remember in 1969, the night of the draft, I was 15 at the time, and I said to my dad, Oh, but I'm I'm okay, right? And he said, "Oh no, this war is going to go on for years." You know, believe me, you're not in safe zone here. When the draft happened in 1972, that was my year. I had turned 19. Well, fortunately for me, the the war ended like 45 days later. Peace talks concluded, and Nixon started to withdraw troops from Vietnam in January of '73. So I I you know escaped. This is amazing. So I guess you're just a few years older than me because, you know, I remember having that conversation with my father and I was, I think I was in just entering high school and the war was still going on pretty mm-hmm. strong and uh, there was still a draft, but I was a ways away. And I told my dad, I would, I would go to Canada. He said to me, if you do that, I'll disown you. That's what my father said. Well, the fathers and, were really important. Yes, because he was in the Navy, you know. Yeah. But I never forgot that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Ray, because my father was the same way. When I when when I got number ninety-five, yeah. that mean I was gonna be getting my induction letter pretty quickly. And I went to my dad and I said, What am I gonna do? And he said, You're you're going to uh, serve your country like I did in World War Two and your grandfather did in World War One. And when I interviewed uh, Vietnam vets and especially men young men that had gone through this draft, um, the common denominator was always the fathers. They always mentioned the conversation they'd had with their dad. So I knew that the fathers needed to play an important role in this play. Yeah, and they do. How, yes. how, how do they show up in the play? Well, because it's very binary. Uh, the fathers were either said, you're going to war. Uh, in fact, there's one uh, father who says, you go to Canada and my home will no longer be open to you. So there you go. Well, Mr. Renati is in my play. And then there were the fathers that said, no way, you are not going to this war. It's misguided. No son of mine is going to Vietnam. So the fathers were very binary. And, of course, that created division in the country. And and it certainly kicked off uh, the the next phase of the anti-war movement across college campuses. As soon as you started drafting college boys... That's when the anti-war movement really kicked into high gear. And then you had Kent State and all and all that. And, yeah. And, that, and, and the riots in Berkeley, right? Oh, yeah. Berkeley was kind of the epicenter of the anti-war movement along with Columbia. But uh, the draft took place in December of 1969. Five months later was Kent State, mm. when you just referenced, where four students were shot and killed oh, yeah. uh, in an anti-war protests that kind of got out of hand. Yeah. Those photos, I think, will never, uh, people who are old enough will never forget that, you know. Yeah, that, uh, that photo of that young woman. Holding her. Yeah, and that oh. won the Pulitzer. That photo won a Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. yeah. Vietnam was such a, 
Oh, God, I was I was a kid through most of it, but it had a huge impression on me. And it, it seemed, like you said, the, the, as exemplified by the fathers, people were either on one side or the other. It was very black and white. You were either uh, sort of a liberal who said, no, son of mine is going to that war. This war is wrong. Or I'm a patriot. Mm-hmm. I was in the... I was in armed services, and you're going to do whatever you're told. And there was no middle ground. Thanks. No. Yeah. yeah. No. And, and I'll, I'll never forget that. And I think it's great that you wrote this play, and it, that it reflects that. And I'm really looking forward to it. So why don't you tell me about your cast? Who, who's, who's in the play? Well, you know, I'm a new playwright, um, and I call this my second act. Okay. You know? uh, <laughs> and, I, and I've always loved that term, second act, as it relates to a second career, and especially because it has this theatrical reference, and so it sort of kicked off this fantasy I'd always had of becoming a playwright. Now that I'm very close to retirement, I started to think about, gee, I think I, I really would like to write this play about the draft, and I've been thinking about the Vietnam draft as a stage play for a long time, because mm-hmm. I just thought, wow, this would be great on stage, that, 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 that live theater is perfect for something like this. You know, I didn't see it as a movie or a documentary, but as a stage play. Yeah. So, um, and so after I, I wrote this play and I worked with a dramaturg, uh, Suze Allen, who's also directing the play, um, it came time to cast it. And I think becoming a playwright, one of the best things about becoming a playwright is working with actors. Because when you, you have these characters that you've invented in your head, and I've read the script in my head so many times, and then when you see these young actors turn them into real three-dimensional people, it's just such a thrill. Yeah. And they all, have all um, really captured the essence of the character the way I had imagined. And then surprised me, uh, because in readings they will do something a little different. And this is what I've learned from Suze Allen, my director, is that you know actors uh, make choices. That's what you do as an actor. Right. And, and I'm fascinated by the choices they make yeah. uh, when they deliver some of these lines. And some of them, you know, they've got, they'll get laughs that I never, never expected. So the actors uh, have been really terrific. And Emily Corbo, who you had on, on one of your podcasts, yeah. Uh, Emily, the Emily Corbel uh, story is such a great story uh, because she came in at the end of a long day where we had been auditioning a dozen actresses and they, they were lovely, lovely young women, but they all looked the same, they all sounded the same, and no one was really getting the 1960s anti-war chick, you know. Mm-hmm. And Emily came in. First of all, she looked like a young Kim Novak. When I said, oh, a young Kim Novak, first of all, she knew who I was talking about. Yeah, I know. She's so I was immediately, I was immediately mm-hmm. impressed. Yes, definitely an old soul. And when I, when I, um, I had this peer-reviewed, you know, yeah. I had several uh, writers review it. My good friend Marty Kine, who's also the creator of a wonderful series called House of Lies, when he read my play, he said, Richard, I love your play. When you cast this, you need to get actors that are good at comedy. It's so heavy. It's so intense. You've got to get actors uh, that know comedy because they always make the best dramatic actors. And I thought that was really interesting feedback. So Emily walks in and she does this monologue, this hilarious monologue from a play called Religiomania. And I thought that was so impressive that she did a comic monologue. It had some dramatic moments, but... I thought, wow, she's really smart to, yeah. to have done this. And then we had her do 
a scene from the play, probably the most difficult scene in the play, it's the climax, and she just knocked that out of the park. And she just got the whole, she just transmitted us back to 1969 mm -hmm. in that audition. And so we had her come back and it was just a no-brainer to cast her yeah. as in the only female role in the play. Is Megan Lewis in the play? Megan uh, Lewis played Linda at the stage reading we did at the oh, Phoenix Theater. right. And yeah. Christian Haynes was in that. Chris yeah. Haynes, a lovely actor. Yeah. Uh, he played Mike, the president of the fraternity. Mm -hmm. Chris is a terrific actor, terrific director. Uh, yeah. Really helped me shape the character of Mike. This is what was so great about working with actors uh, that were willing to really spend some time with me, uh, talking about the play, talking about the story, talking about the character. Mm -hmm. I've spent hours talking to Emily about the character of Linda because she just wants to know more about her. And I find few actors will really put in that kind of time. Yeah. But Chris Haynes was willing to do it just because he loved the story, he loved the idea. Yeah. And, and Emily really wants to get this right. I had a great experience working with her myself, and I think she's a big talent and a really creative person. And she yeah. knows a lot about history. And she's and a writer. And she's a writer, yeah. too. So which is she great. understands the yeah. writing process. And I had taken a couple of acting classes, so and I'm glad I did, because I understand what actors do. Mm -hmm. I'll never be an actor. I sucked. But <laughs> I'm going to stick to writing. But it was great talking to... People like Emily and people like Christian Haynes, because they're both writers, they're both actors, Christian directs. Yeah. I think Emily would be a great director someday. But at the end of this play, I'm going to kick Emily to Los Angeles. If I have to drive her myself, because she, she's got... Oh, yeah, she'll, she'll work, I and she'll probably be in a TV series or in movies yeah, or something. She, she's going to go places. She's got the talent. She looks great on camera. You know, she's, got every, she's got everything you need. <laughs> yeah, but, and we cast another guy... Um, Max uh, Foreman Mullen, uh, who plays Rory. And one of the um, techniques I learned from another fellow playwright is he said, you know, one of the ways to cast people is go see them in something if you can, if they happen to be in a play. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to resemble your play at all. So uh, I went to see A View from the Bridge, a play that you directed, mm -hmm. uh, Will Marchetti's production at the Shelton. Oh, right. Uh, because there was an actor in that play, in Max, and I wanted to see him as he was playing Marco, one of my favorite roles. Oh, yeah. And so half an hour into this play, I'm looking at this guy thinking, oh, my God, he's perfect. He is perfect for the character of Rory. The character Rory in my play is Irish. His last name is McAllister, and Max is of Irish descent, even though in even the Bridget by Italian. Yeah. But Irish, Italian, you know. Yeah, it's pretty much the same thing. Catholic Church, yes, yeah. all that stuff. So I just reached out to him, and I thought, I've got this new play, and he came in, and oh, my God. He, he just a really talented, natural actor, and... He um, could play any role in this play, but he's perfect as, as Rory. And he works super well with the other actors, and he's just an extraordinary guy. So uh, I've just been blessed with finding some really terrific uh, actors for the play. Nick Coleus, an actor out of Los Angeles, is playing the role of David, okay. which is the uh, sort of the big man on campus, you know, the strikingly handsome guy that gets all the girls, he's really smart, he's athletic, you know, the guy we'd love to hate. Yeah. He's actually uh, modeled after one of my own fraternity brothers. He's just a, another just super, super actor. Yeah. So your friend, your friend said that uh, comedic actors make the best 
dramatic actors. I'm curious about that. What, why does he say that's true? Or I agree, but I was just yeah. wondering. What, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, because, for a number of reasons. Well, because yeah. for to be, you know, to be a good comedic actor, you have to have good timing, and you have to go pretty deep. And it's hard. You know, it's hard to be funny. And you know, he said, you know, to be a good actor or a good playwright or a good at anything, you have to invest in. The, you have to do the work, invest in the time, and tell the truth, you know, be truthful yeah. to whatever you're doing and the results will follow. And also he said, you know, you've got some comic uplift in this play. You know, it was absolutely necessary. I mean, these are frat boys after all. First half, there are some funny lines, lines that are meant to get a laugh. And you need people that know how to do that. And there were also lines that I had no intention of getting a laugh. And, and these actors were able to do that. They're able to make them funny. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was just really wonderful, uh, just to see the actors do that. Yeah, so. I've had that experience as a director a number of times, and you just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's mesmerizing. It's like, how did you get a laugh there? <laughs> I never would have pictured that. It's—it's—it's it's, it's wonderful. Why do you think friends turned against friends when it was a—it was something that was completely out of their control? You know, the, the number they got. Why, why would a, a person with did the person with the low number resent the person with the higher number who probably wasn't going to have to go or how did, how, how did that work? Well, there was some of that. And, and I know what young people um, say to me, they're, they're kind of surprised. First of all, uh, when we did the staged reading afterwards, I had young people come up to me and say, did this really happen? And I said, yeah, you know, I didn't make this up. And then older people would come up to me and say, oh, I remember that night like, as if it were yesterday. Yeah. And I remember uh, uh, Laura Bruckner said to me, because she had come to the reading, and she said, boy, Richard, you've crossed the age barrier. You know, young people, old people like this play. But what, what happened is that night, and I remember this so vividly because I remember my year, 1972, that draft was December 7th, and we were all listening to it. And I got 95, a good friend of mine got 35, and another friend of ours got like 251. And so the guys that got high numbers, they were drinking themselves into oblivion. They were so happy. They were celebrating. Yeah. We're not going to this war. And those of us with low numbers were just terrified. And mm -hmm. in one case, you know, there was a fraternity brother of mine who was just crying his eyes out. And so you had this, this resentment. So here you've got you know one guy crying his eyes out and these other guys are just partying. Mm -hmm. And there was just no empathy. They, they just didn't feel sorry. <laughs> they were so happy to not be going to war. Mm -hmm. And that just created some divisions. My brother drew a very high number. He's two years older than me. Uh, my cousin Alan drew a low number. They were very good friends, and they didn't speak for years because my brother was cocky about it. Hey, I'm two fifty one, you know. And they and when you if you do a high number, you, uh, those guys were cocky about having drawn a high mm. number. And they're so young, and uh, at that period in their life, maybe they hadn't learned how to be empathetic yet. <laughs> Probably. And also, I, I was in a fraternity, and I, yeah. I know what the atmosphere is like. And it's unfiltered. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's not a lot of uh, 
even though you're called brothers, it's, yes. there's not a lot of brotherhood very often. Yeah. yeah. Well, especially the draft. I mean, it was just a very And the alcohol nice going along with it. And the alcohol. Yeah. And the alcohol. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we've got all that in, the, in my play. There's a lot of drinking. And then once they start to realize that their lives have been changed forever, then the guys start to turn on each other. The, the guys with the low numbers start to resent the yeah. guys that are not going to war. Well, I'm glad that you kept the alcohol in there to keep it, yeah. uh, you know, oh, yeah. honest. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you've been working on this play for nine years, is that right? A long time. I got the idea in 2009, mm -hmm. which was the 40th anniversary of the draft. On the 40th anniversary, I, there was a, a wonderful writer, Dennis O'Neill, who wrote this book, Whiplash. <laughs> and you can look at the subtitle there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, in fact, it's... What is the subtitle that... The, when the Vietnam War rolled a hand grenade into the animal house. <laughs> yeah, so Dennis O'Neill wrote this Neat. book about his fraternity days at Dartmouth. Mm -hmm. And in 2009, on the 40th anniversary of the draft, I heard him interviewed uh, on NPR. And he talked about that night. And as he started describing just this, how this lottery happened and the drinking and just everything that you and I have been talking about... I just thought, God, this would just make such a great stage play. So I started, uh, I read his book. I started researching. I, started, I, I reached out to um, Vietnam veterans and heard their stories and interviewed dozens of them uh, about that night and about the draft and those that went and those that became anti-war activists. And finally, after a couple of years of research and a binder this thick, you know, two inches thick. Of, I, thought, I said, okay, I've got to write this thing now. Yeah. Enough research, now you've got to actually write it. Yeah. And so I um, thought about my own fraternity brothers and I used them as inspiration to uh, develop the personas of the characters in my play. Mm -hmm. And can you give us a brief synopsis of the play without giving away... Is that possible to give a little bit of the story without spoilers? Yeah, without spoiling it. Well, it's, or just it's it's really it's it's about it's a reenactment of that night. Okay. So uh, lights up and you're in the draft. There's no warm up. Oh, okay. It's, you're just you're right just, there. You are right in it. Okay, good. And uh, these numbers just keep coming. And so there's five fraternity brothers. There's David, who is the smart one. He's the historian, mm -hmm. and uh, he is keeping track of all this. He's writing down the names of the birth dates as they're called out and matching them up with who's going, you know, when. And then there's Chad. He's um, a football player. He's a star running back for the Quakers. It takes place at the University of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. um, and he's the cocky athlete. And there's Rory, who is the uh, bookworm. He's an accounting major. Uh, he gets a low number and he's terrified um, and then there's Tim. He gets a low number, and, and he's sort of the antagonist of the play. So Chad is the voice of, hey, you know, if we have to go to war, we have to stop the communists. Uh, and his father is like the father you and I had. His father's like, you are, if you get drafted, you are going to go serve your country just like I went to World War II and your granddad served in World War I. Yeah. Tim, on the other, he's the antagonist. He's saying, no way. This war is misguided. These politicians are lying about the war. I am not going. I am going to find a way to get out of this. And the other guys are just sort of neutral. They're not really political. They just don't want to go. Yeah. So you've got the protagonist and the antagonist fighting the whole play and asking David, who's researched this, how can we get out of it? Mm -hmm. 
And throughout that, throughout the evening, um, arguments and fights break out. And, and how do the and how many women are in the play? Just one. Just just yeah. just Emily's character. And she and plays the sister of the um, the chapter president. Oh, okay, great. Well, sounds great. Um, what now? You say you're a new playwright, but you've written some other plays, right? I have. I've written um, a couple of comedies. After I wrote the the birthday lottery, I really needed a break. Yeah. I wrote a comedy uh, about Leonard Bernstein called My Afternoon with Lenny. It's a play about mistaken identity, sort of mm. borrows from A Midsummer's Night's Dream. Oh, okay. And um, then I worked on another comedy called Dead Serious about two female assassins. Very dark, very dark comedy. Um, lots of sex and, and um, murder, <laughs> blood, uh, death. And then I'm working on a play about Franklin Roosevelt, another... Um, that that peers into how he made decisions, uh, particularly his decision to intern Japanese Americans during World War II. Oh, wow. That sounds really interesting, especially with what's going on right now in our current political climate. Exactly. How do you think this play relates to our current political climate, the, the, uh, the birthday lottery? Well, you know, that was my big question is, is this going to be relevant? Mm -hmm. um, and I found that as a playwright... When you write a play, keep it sort of close to the vest in terms of who you who you talk about it with, mm -hmm. because a lot of people said, "Oh, who wants to go see a play that takes place in 1969?" And so I started to think, "Wow, is this relevant?" Uh, but I found that a good story is a good story. It doesn't matter when it takes place mm -hmm. if it's a good story. Yeah, and this happens to be relevant on a couple of fronts. A, the 50th anniversary of the draft is coming up. And, of course, America doesn't seem to have learned its lesson in terms of getting involved in foreign wars. And here we are in Iraq, we're in Afghanistan. Um, talk about North Korea is scaring the hell out of people, especially those of us that live on the West Coast yeah. in, the, in the firing range. So I think the idea of, of young men getting drafted in a mandatory draft to go to war is is, uh, is is pretty relevant right now. Mm -hmm. We've learned, I guess the only thing we've really learned is how to develop professional uh, armed forces that can sort of sustain itself without a draft. But other yeah. than that, we're still getting involved in places that we probably shouldn't get involved. Yes, and, the, uh, and, and, I, and mm -hmm. I remember with the Iraq, when we went to war with Iraq, I thought... Boy, have these politicians learned nothing? Because they were all old enough to have remembered Vietnam. Of course. Some of them went to Vietnam. And I was astounded that we were so quick to get involved in a foreign war, uh, especially because Cheney was saying it will be in and out of there in six months. And that was the thing with, with Vietnam. Oh, we'll go in there. We're the United States military. We're the biggest, baddest military on earth. We'll go in there and we'll just crush Vietnam yeah. within a year and we'll be out. And, of course, we were there for for 10 years. Yeah. And and we, we, we didn't succeed in Afghanistan or Iraq no. either. So, uh, in Vietnam, was, you know, we lost, you know, over 58,000 oh, soldiers. And so when I, when young people are astounded when I tell them and, and the members of this cast, when they were auditioning for it, they'd ask me questions and I'd say, yeah, we, you know, we lost 58,000 soldiers and they were just stunned. Oh yeah. Uh, they couldn't believe the number. And I said, oh yeah, at the height of the war, the, it was 100 soldiers per week. There was one particularly deadly week uh, in June of 1969 
where in one week, 242 soldiers died. Mm. So it was, uh, it was a brutal, it was a brutal time in our history. Do you remember watching the news when you were young? I remember back then they could, they'd show all the battles during the, you know, the, the evening news. And then they'd have those graphics and they're like, how many dead today? How many wounded? How many missing? And every day there were, you know, at least in the double digits. It was so, it had such an impact on me when I was a, a young boy, you know. Sometimes I wonder why my parents let me watch it. I yeah. Mean, <laughs> I mean, there was no filtering. There was, no. No, they would show the battles right there on your TV screen and then show how many, and I remember them dumping bodies into a truck, American soldiers, you know, just piling them on top of one another. It was so heartbreaking. It was a, a televised war. And yeah. I, I talked to some people who said they were traumatized by it because they were young. They were 10, 12 years old. I was. Honestly, yeah. I was. I, I still remember it so vividly. It was, yeah. it was horrible. I couldn't yeah, believe that we were doing this. It's pretty tough for a twelve-year-old to be watching something like that. Yeah, and there's a reference in the play. There, you know, one of the one of the brothers has an eleven-year-old sister who is traumatized by by the war. Yeah. So I thought that was important to to, to put that into the play as well. I so it's great you did. It's heavy. This play is heavy. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think there's enough time between now, between then and now. Like you said, a lot of people don't even remember because either because they're young or it was so long ago. But I think yeah. there's enough time between Vietnam and, and now for us to, to well, it's to 50, be able it's to, 50 years. Yeah, so and, 50 years. Is and you mentioned resentment. So yeah. the um, one of the uh, the things that came out in this play, I let a friend of mine read it. The guy I work with, and little did I know, he's a conservative. Like he's pretty far to the right, and he went to Vietnam when he was called. Yeah. And so my play is about these fraternity brothers that are desperately trying to get out of going to the war, out of going to war. Yeah. And that just brought up memories with this guy, and he hated the play. Mm. And I went to Suze Allen, who was my dramaturg, and I said, oh, my God, you know, there are going to be people in the audience that really hate this play. And she said, that's great. I said, how is that great? She goes, oh, if you have people that hate it and people that love it, because a lot of people love the play. Yeah. Uh, she says, love it, hate it. That's when you know you've got a winner. If people just say, yeah, it was good, it's fine, that's the kiss of death. So she said, but, you know, we've got some, there's enough division or enough time here that some wounds have healed. And when I talked with Vietnam vets that had been drafted mm -hmm. and they asked me what my play was about, a lot of them said, I understand the guys that tried to get out of the draft. That was their decision, and they became anti-war activists. And a lot of them said, when I came back from Vietnam, I became an anti-war activist. Yeah. So while they resented the guys that went to Canada or got out of the draft, enough time has gone by that they've said, yeah, I, I, I'm okay with them. I forgive them. Yeah. Uh, when Jimmy Carter did a full-scale amnesty, and he said, all the guys that went to Canada to avoid the draft, yeah. you're welcome back in the United States. Full pardon, because, yeah. Yeah, he gave them a yeah. full pardon because yeah. it was treason. Dodging the draft is treason. Yeah. And if you had were coming over the border from Canada, your name was checked against a list of known draft dodgers. And if you were on that list, you were immediately arrested. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when he did that. There was a lot of controversy around Definitely. that. Yeah. But I think it was... Definitely the right thing to do. I do too. You know, yeah. Abe Lincoln did it after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. He did an amnesty. Uh, there's a really wonderful. He did, huh? Yes. Interesting. There's, there's a really wonderful um, 
uh, letter that he wrote to a, to a mother, who, which has now become um, a, 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 not in a play, but there's a, there's a terrific Aaron Copeland concert that I went to recently uh, that featured Audra McDonald. And in this, um, it's sort of one of those concert plays. You know, it's not a real play, mm-hmm. but it's, it follows the Civil War against this wonderful music of Aaron Copeland. Yes. And towards the end, they read this fantastic letter uh, written by Abraham Lincoln, where he lets he, he declares amnesty for for draft dodgers, ah. and I've seen it. I saw it performed at Kennedy Center, and uh, the great Peter Coyote read it, and he was just fantastic. he has the most wonderful voices, and I think he was in Marin. <laughs> he was just terrific. Yeah, and um, so in this one, they asked Audra McDonald to read it because oh, they and they never had a woman do it, and she yeah. said, "I'm down for that." Yeah. And she was fantastic, and there was not a dry eye in the house. And it was the first time they'd ever have a, had a woman uh, read it. And somewhere else but San Francisco would you try something different. Right. Like that, you know? And yeah. because uh, Peter Coyote was, is, has always been, you know, the choice to read that letter. Yeah. Abe Lincoln He's letter. the choice for everything. Yeah. Either him or Morgan Freeman. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm, I bet Morgan Freeman probably has done it. Yeah, know? probably. Yeah. yeah. How long have you been involved in the San Francisco theater scene? Well, just, uh, you know, just a few years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I joined the Dramatist Guild, and I'm part of the San Francisco Playwrights Center, and I met um, some other playwrights. And the San Francisco playwright community is extremely generous. I mean, people tell me it's not quite like New York where people... <laughs> but, you know, Robin <laughs> Bradford, uh, she wrote this wonderful play called Low-Hanging Fruit about uh, women soldiers in Iraq. And... Um, She's she's just a, one of these very generous playwrights. I've gone to her readings. She's going to come to this play. Uh, she gave me some great uh, ideas about the play. John Fisher, a local playwright, you know, he's won enough awards to fill my apartment. Um, and he's written a lot of plays about war. And he read my play. He was on my peer review team. And um, he is, uh, in fact, one of he's the testimonial that we feature in our promotion. Uh, John has just become a terrific friend and uh, a wonderful playwright. Uh, Vaughn Scott Bear, another playwright, local playwright, is actually in uh, my play. He plays Colonel Omar. Oh. Uh, so I kind of envy these playwrights that are also actors. Um, yeah. And, uh, John Fisher, is a ter- he just won a Best Actor Award for his play about World War II. It's a one-man show. Mm-hmm. And it's a comedy. You know, who else but John Fisher could do this? You know, he's a, he's a great... <laughs> Uh, comedic actor, and he just did a production of The Normal Heart, which he starred in. I mean, just a fantastic guy. There's so, so much talent here, isn't there? There's just, wonderful talent. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, w- When we were casting this play, it was really tough mm-hmm. because the actors in this play are all college kids. They're 21 years old. Yeah. And so we were getting, you know, inexperienced actors that hadn't didn't have the training and weren't quite getting it. And Sally Dana, my casting director, said, well, you know, if we were in L.A., I, I, we'd, I'd have cast this by now. Because we went through a three-month casting process. There's so and, many people to choose from down there. And, and Suze Allen kept kicking the back, saying, no, you know, they're just not getting it. They're just not getting what it meant to be drafted to Vietnam. And um, so uh, that part was hard. Uh, and so we ended up with actors, a lot of them in their late 20s, a couple of them are in their early 30s yeah. that have got more experience. Now, Emily is 23. Yeah. And she said, um, 
boy, this is the first time I'm going to play someone my own age. But with Emily, I said, you've been acting a long time, haven't you? And she said, yeah, I've been acting since I was eight years old. So in her case, and in the case of uh, Max, you know, they, they both been, they, they've done their 10,000 hours to yes. come out from Black Cloud. Yeah. But, but a lot of them hadn't. They were brand new. They'd done one, one or two shows. They'd never played a lead character. Uh, and so they were so green. Yeah. Um, but my director was very good. She said, you know, if someone gets the essence of the character, I'm willing to work with them. Um, because uh, they're, they're, you know, when you, when you have someone like Max Foreman Mullen or Emily Corbo, their training just comes out. Hunter Scott McNair is another actor uh, who trained with some of the best in New York City for, for seven years. And, when, and Sally kept saying she, she would look for their training that they had done on their resume. And I can see why she did that, because you could just see which actors have, have had that training versus those that have not. Yeah, it can make a big difference. It really can. Especially with young actors, you, a lot of times you, you see a lot of raw talent there, but are they up for it now? You know, yeah. are they up for this now at this time? And you want to you want to give them a chance, but at the same time, you only have a few weeks to get ready, and you can't teach somebody to act in a few weeks. No, you can't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Suze is willing to give to, to work uh, with an actor for mm -hmm. some extra time, but mm -hmm. she's like, "Yeah, we got three weeks rehearsal. Yeah. These guys kind of land running." Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's true. The, the show is going to be opening on, what's the date? March the 29th. Mm -hmm. uh, we open just four performances. It's a workshop production, yeah. really, to see what works, what doesn't. I'm yeah. sure there'll be another, there'll be some more tweaks after this. But uh, Suze Allen was my dramaturg, and she worked with me for a year on this play. Yeah. Uh, just building the, you know, helping with the story logic and the story structure yeah. and developing the characters. Uh, the first draft of this play I know now wasn't very good because you know, <laughs> it's now gone through like eight you know rewrites that's good screen. though that's yeah good and Suze fortunately when she read the play she saw that there were some issues with it but she said you know you've got a really good storyline here and she said you've got a you've structured it beautifully and you've got some good characters but you've you've got to fill this thing out a little bit interestingly you know I came up in corporate communications and advertising. Mm -hmm. So I was trained, word economy was just pounded into my head. You know, anybody that's a business writer, you, it's all about limitations. It's all about word count when you write press releases yes. or ads. <laughs> so she, Sue said, you know, with a new playwright, I'm always editing a third of it out. You know, with you, she says, you've actually been a little skimpy. Your writing <laughs> is very, very tight. And she said, there's some places where you need to get a little more. So, um, we there's a, a another monologue that was added uh, for the character Linda, where Linda has a little bit of a meltdown on stage, mm -hmm. um, and then we developed the the protagonist antagonist uh, sort of turned the volume up on the conflict, yeah. the um, relationship and the conflict that's happening because people like conflict on stage. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and I and I've always known that you know, yeah. uh, and I, I I went to a great seminar by Robert McGee, and that was the first you know conflict on stage, but without being melodramatic. Right. So, one of the things that uh, Suze Allen said to me when we first met was, you know, Richard, the sign of a good playwright is to create a conflict or a situation that is just unsurmountable, that the audience will be saying, my God, how will they get out of this? 
And she said, that's what this draft was. It's, it's the government. You know, it's, the, it's this edict being handed down from the U.S. government that you are going to war. That really was the feeling of Vietnam. I mean, when I look back, that really was it. It just seemed like an impossible situation that we could never get out of. Yeah. And all these people were paying the price, all these young people. It was so yeah, sad. I mean, 58, over 58,000 dead and 75,000 disabled. And I talked to, I interviewed a lot of Vietnam vets that were And they're still suffering. Oh, yeah. I talked to these vets that are in pain every day. Yeah. They've been in pain every day for 40 years. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm really glad you wrote this play. I can't wait to see it. Do you have any plans for the future for this play? Well, we I want to pitch it to universities because it takes place at a university. It, the characters are seniors in college. And I just think it's a great play for universities, mm -hmm. for university for university productions. Yeah, I, I would think so. Yeah, into the right age, they won't have to play people that are uh, thirty years older than that. <laughs> get to play I always love going to college productions and people yeah. are playing eighty-year-olds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's interesting because uh, you know when they would come in and and we said, "Yeah, you're going to be playing a twenty-one-year-old." Seemed like it would be easy, and it was much tougher than, than I ever imagined. The casting process was much tougher than I ever imagined. Yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like you, you got the people that you need. So. Oh, I'm blessed. We and and Suze is wonderful, too. I think Suze she's a wonderful so director and really smart, and she really has a good sense of intuition about things. She yeah, and, 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 and a, you know, vision, because that's what the director is, is, mm -hmm. is, is to create a vision for the play. And so Suze just has this little, you know, movie that goes off into her head and she sees how this, she wants this to play out. Mm -hmm. And Suze is actually better at pitching this play than I am. Uh, so she's really excited about it. <laughs> yeah, and, well, and it really she has a teenage son. You know, her yeah. her son Zeke just turned sixteen, maybe seventeen, and so this sort of hit home for her because she thought, "Wow, what if my own son were drafted?" The idea of it was sort of terrifying to her, and especially with two foreign wars going on in North Korea looming. So she sort of you know looked at this play very much from. The perspective of, of a mother of a young son. Ah, yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Hey everybody, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mr. Richard Fouts. I certainly did. And I hope you enjoyed Carly's music as well. I'm going to close out the show with another one of her songs, uh, Imagine, by the great John Lennon. You know, I really enjoy doing this podcast and what would be really helpful to me if you could if you could go to iTunes and leave me a rating, an honest rating, and some comments if you like. Uh, I also have a Patreon page. You can find it on my website, raisegreenroom.com, raisegreenroom.com. I'm probably going to start uh, asking some of my yeah biggest fans to maybe... Uh, Give me a little bit of money on a monthly basis. And I'm talking about a little bit of money, less than a cup of coffee. I don't want anybody feeling this, but it actually costs a lot of money and time to do a podcast like this. And I'd like to keep doing it. So anyway, thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time. And where will I see you? On the boards. Good night, everybody.
Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try No hell below us Above us only sky Imagine all Live!